Thank you. It's great to be here with you this morning. And uh, just to let you know, some things that are happening in the bulletin, hopefully you grabbed one of those on the way in. Um, the, the main one that I want to highlight is the insert, because this is an opportunity for the kids to serve and for families to get involved with that. So throughout the month of, of July, there will be um, some items being collected uh, to prepare some uh, backpacks to bless some of the area students here. And so this is the Kids Serve project for the end of the summer as we move into July. There's a list here in your bulletin. You can also talk to Kelly Hustad sitting up here uh, in the front row if you, if you need some more information about that. But that's a project that's coming up, uh, putting those all together in August, but looking to collect those items throughout the month of July. So great practical way to serve and get involved. So today is Family Sunday. It's great to have the kids in here with us. We're missing uh, all the teenagers, though. Uh, the majority. There, there's a few scattered in the room, so I won't single you out. But that's because they're heading back right now from Kansas, and so we'll have a, uh, you know, an aroma of, of middle schoolers who have been uh, not bathing for a few days. We'll start to waft into the room here a little bit later towards the end of the servant service, and then also uh, the youth leaders that have been serving there. So look forward to welcome, welcoming them back as we move through the service today. So today we're going to be in James chapter 4. You can begin to turn there. This is uh, the, the last Sunday of a series that we've been doing, looking at different aspects of love. Because, you know, in, in Greek, there's different words that are used to describe love. We looked in the spring at the word affection. Right now we're looking at friendship. Uh, later in the year we'll get to intimacy and then finally gift love or that agape love that we talk about God demonstrating. But looking at some of those different, you know, the Greek words that you've probably heard for love, right? Uh, maybe the first one, not so familiar, storge was affection. Right now, phileo, the city of Philadelphia has that in, in the name of the city. Um, and then eros, or that intimacy love that uh, God has designed for within marriage. And then finally, agape, or that gift love, that other-centered love that gives and sacrifices. But one aspect of, of love that God uh, commands us to practice, that Jesus himself commands repeatedly in the New Testament, is to love one another. And so what does that look like when uh, Jesus says in, in John 15, we looked at in the first week, that he says he no longer calls us servants, but he calls us friends. So he calls us his friends. What does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? What does it mean to be a friend of God? What does it mean to be friends within the body of Christ, to have that? right? And so... There's an insight that C.S. Lewis brought out in his book, The Four Loves. He said, friendship is the least biologically necessary of the loves. You don't actually need friendship in order to continue the human race. You know, you needed that intimacy love to get you here on the planet. Your parents, thankfully, uh, had that sort of love working, and that's why you're here today. It was a biologically necessary love that continues the human race. You also needed the affection kind of love that is part of a family. It's, it's what keeps a mother nurturing her child and a father caring for the needs of that family. So uh, the intimacy got you here. Affection kept you alive until adulthood. But what about friendship? It's not really biologically necessary. In fact, a lot of times uh, the tribe looks at friendship as something that's dangerous. So if, if anything, it's not only not biologically necessary, but it, it may be looked at as a danger, as a risk to all of us kind of collectively getting along, right? Because what we define friendship as, the posture of friendship, and I'll, I'll, I'll use my wife here to pick, pick on her as a sermon illustration, so sorry, I didn't, I didn't clear this with her ahead of time. Pray for our marriage. Uh, this is a really bad idea. Don't ever do this. 
So could, could you please stand up, sweetie? All right, so, so here's, the, here's the posture for that intimacy kind of love, you know, looking in each other's eyes longingly, right? <laughs> and, and then the affection, you know, th- this is kind of like a, a safe posture that you could have with anybody in church. And, you know, like the picture that we had uh, in, in the spring was of a group of puppies all huddled together and snuggling and there's warmth and it's safety and it's familiar, Right? Well, friendship is, is a different posture. It's two people that are looking at the same truth and seeing that same truth. And, oh, you, you see the same thing I do. Wow, that's exciting. Okay? And we, we, I don't have one for gift love. We'll have to come up with that later. Thank you. That was, that was fantastic. <laughs> Excuse to snuggle with my wife during the sermon. That friendship, love, is two people looking at the same truth. And when you find that person that you thought you were the only one who saw it that way, and, and you find somebody else, and, and they see the exact same truth that you are pursuing or looking at, know to be true, and you have this feeling of, what? You see it too? That person could very well become your friend. And, and there's not a lot of focusing on the friendship, discussing the relationship, talking about the friendship, even the parts of where, you know, your friend is there for you when you have a need. That's almost an embarrassing afterthought to the, the truth that you both see to be true. Uh, and it can be as, as blasé and mundane as dominoes or white mice, C.S. Lewis says in his section on this sort of love, where, where wow, you, you love dominoes as much as I do. Now, hopefully, the depth of Christian friendship that we're talking about goes far deeper than just those trivial interests or pursuits that we have. And yet, the reason that friendship is not only biologically unnecessary, but actually a risk to the collective, the tribe, the community, is because you and I could probably think of examples where two or more friends have looked at an untruth that they both held to, and they have been motivated and passionate about going in a very dark, evil direction. Think about some of the mass shootings or the acts of terrorism where you've got people who join together and they partner together apart from the tribe, apart from the community, and they get passionate about going in a particular direction together. And it's caused destruction and pain and horror. So there's a risk of friendship. Friends uniting for an evil purpose that they both share, looking at that same untruth. But that the 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 negative reality does not negate the truth that friendship is something that God has created and designed, and He's created us to be in community with other believers and with Himself in this friendship way. So, how do we grow in Christian friendship in our own lives, in our homes, in our church, and right in our, our neighborhoods that we live in as well? Well, we're going to take a look at James chapter 4 today. A couple of passages, one from James 4 and then also in Colossians 3. So let's turn together to James chapter 4. Look at some verses that will give us some guidance on how do we grow in receiving, reciprocating, practicing Christian friendship. So James 4 verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So this passage here, there's a couple of clues as we're, we're going to get further into James together. Uh, right here in the first verse, we, we hear this phrase, among you. A little bit later, verse 11, you're going to see one another. This is a, instructions to the church on how does friendship 
happen within the one another, the among you category, which is different from the outsiders, the them out there. This is a one another type of passage. Instructions written to the church in particular, how do you practice relationships, Christian friendship within the body? Not just the general, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty nice guy. I smile at strangers at Walmart. That's fine if you're friendly, but we're talking about friendship. And this is something that occurs within the body of Christ. And so, uh, in the, on the negative sense, what causes rifts in friendship within the body? What causes the quarrels and fights? Well, the precise answer here in verse 1 is your passions at war within you. Your passions, your, your appetites, your affections. That word comes up again in verse 3. Uh, there's a, a, a great book written by Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s called religious affections and in that in that book in his view on this aspect of passions desires affections he looks at two aspects of what we hunger for the things that our appetites run after and one of those the first part of the soul is the understanding it's that part of do we understand the truth do we know do we have knowledge of god but the second part where it gets into the affection is your inclination so that would be kind of like, what, do you, what are you leaning toward? Your inclination, what are you inclined toward? Where does your soul lean? The danger here in James is that there, there is an inclination of our soul. It's not toward religious affections. It's not pointed toward God and his glory. Our base default setting is not to honor him, to glorify him, to lift him up. It's not other-focused at all. In fact, we come hardwired to this sin nature to look out for number one. My hungers, my appetites, how can I get it? How can I claw ahead? How can I climb the rungs? How can I step on a few of you along the way? Me first. That's what causes the quarrels and the fights. And he goes on to elaborate here in verse two. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's the ultimate self-focused act, right? Like I want this, you're not giving it to me, I'll just kill you and take it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there's both actions and attitudes at work. And it's all self-focused. And these are barriers to the friendship that God desires us to have. Well, listen to the the final verdict on this whole posture that that James has been unpacking for us and warning us of, don't go in this direction. Here's here's what we are called if this is the kind of life we practice. Verse 4, you adulterous people. That's a shocking word to see in your Bible this morning on a Sunday morning. Adulterous? Man, that conjures up all kinds of ideas, right, of infidelity, Breaking covenant vows in marriage. So adultery, you think about, you know, we, we had a wedding celebration a couple of weeks ago with Hayden and Rebecca renewing their vows and they reiterated some promises that they made 16 months prior. And they'd written those vows out and made some pledges to one another about staying committed no matter what comes life's way. Well, you know, if, if a couple gets done at the altar saying, I, I pl- promise to forsake all others and cleave to you only. You know, the traditional vows. 
and then, and then the groom turns around and winks at a pretty girl in the crowd, you're going to be a bit uneasy about the prospects of that marriage, right? That's an adulterous posture where the vows, the covenant vows that are spoken are not lived out in real life. And this is the, the harsh word that James used to describe someone who is going after my passions, my appetites, my hungers, my desires. Adultery. Why adultery? Well, listen now as he explains that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Hmm. Now, what, what does he mean by the world, right? Like, don't ever be friendly to anyone on the planet, right? I, I don't think that's where he's going. It's the world in the negative sense. The world in terms of those who are not focused on the glory of God. Those who are focused on just filling the passions that we've got. Whatever, whatever you want to do, go, if it feels good, do it. That whole mentality of life in this world. And so if we go after friendship with the world, looking, standing side by side, holding hands with the world, looking at that same untruth and saying, you believe that too? That's exactly how I feel. Let's go for it. James calls that adultery because now we've allowed our appetites and our hungers and our desires to come off of God and his glory and his kingdom and instead to focus and fixate on self-gratification, self-love, and those hungers and appetites that need to be submitted to him, need to be brought to the cross and put to death and resurrected and breathed new life into so there can actually be a new creation way of living. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. There's one of the divine attributes you don't see listed in the systematic theology textbook, right? You know, God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. Oh, and by the way, he's jealous. He's a jealous God. That is one of the attributes of God. And we think of jealousy as a really negative thing, right? Like, you wouldn't want God to be jealous, And yet within the context of covenant relationship, jealousy is entirely appropriate. If I make covenant vows to my wife and I begin to break those vows by not forsaking all others and there's a little special someone on the side, she has every right and it would be entirely appropriate for her to be jealous and to confront me and to bring in some brothers in Christ to say, hey, get that guy back in line. We got a problem here. And so when God expresses jealousy over his people who, his word says in an extreme way, it's an adulterous relationship when our hungers and our passions and our friendships go after the things of this world. God is a jealous God. He wants all of our love flowing directly to him alone. And it's not because he's, you know, some egomaniac, like inappropriately going after his own glory. It's because he is the only one who's glorious. And for him to not pursue his glory, to not desire that our affections flow to him alone, that would actually be an act of idolatry in itself. Because God would be giving approval to any one of us, giving some part of our heart and our love to something other than him. That's just not how the universe is set up. He is the only glorious one. He's the creator of all things. 
And as we worship him, as we glorify him, as all of our affection flows to him alone, that's when we experience abundant life and joy and peace. And he knows that and he wants the best for us. And so he's a jealous God. He wants all of our affection going to him alone. So today, if you're taking a self-inventory and you're looking at those first verses in James 4, and you're not liking what you're seeing as you look inside and you go, you know, some of my affection has been flowing in a different direction. There's been some spiritual adultery happening. And you're feeling some conviction over that. God's putting his finger on your heart. Don't let that turn into self-condemnation. There's good news to come. He gives more grace. Verse 6. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Make sure you pick the right category on that verse, right? Don't be in the category of the proud. Like, I got this covered. I can figure this out on my own. I can handle this. It's as you come with humility that God can give you the grace that you need to help you get your affections back in line, to, to deal with that friendship with the world temptation that lures you down the wrong path, and to get you to that place where all of your covenant love is going to him alone, and you're focusing on that truth. Why friendship with God? Well, it's because the truth that he sees, he wants you to stand alongside him and look at it and say, what? You see it too? Your glory above all else? Your kingdom first? And he wants you to stand right beside him looking to that truth that he knows is true because he's the maker of all. And as you do that, the good news is you'll be looking around you and you'll see there's a, there's a brother in Christ who's looking at that same truth. There's a sister in Jesus who's looking at that same truth fixed on Jesus and you're going to look at each other with awe and wonder and say, you see him too, his glory, his kingdom, and that's where friendship can begin. So he gives grace to the humble. So verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Man, these are, these are uh, Christian heart postures that are not really popular in America, right? You know, we'd like to hear about the joy, the forgiveness, the grace, the hope, and those are all awesome things, but we're instructed to take a hard look at the reality of our dark hearts and how our affections get pulled in the wrong directions. And as we do that, to, to grieve and to mourn and to weep, and to come to God in humility and say, give me more grace for today. I need that strength that you promise. I, I'm drawing near to you today, Lord, as I did yesterday. And I thank you that when I draw near to you, you draw near to me. He doesn't hold us at arm's length. He doesn't remind us of our past failures. He reminds us of the cross that was sufficient to cover our sin. And we come to him with that hope. Not, not breaking the covenantal vows, not like a cheating spouse, but like a faithful lover that comes to him in, in complete openness, reality of this is my heart, this is where I am, this is who I am, and he knows it already. 
But that humility is where he can work and draw near. And finally, not just drawing near, but listen to the end here. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Really, there's a lot of symbolism and imagery here of our connection with Jesus in his death and the three days in the tomb and the resurrection, the glorification that comes at the end of that. You and I, we're in that phase of waiting in the tomb, right? Like we've died to that old way of living, that old me that just went after whatever I hungered for. Whatever appetite I had, man, I, I grabbed it and ate. Well, that, that's the old me. That's the desiring after this world. That's pursuing the things of this world, setting my affections on things below. But there's a new me we're going to read here in Colossians, just a bit, that expands on this theme. Colossians 3. There's a new me, and I'm not going to go back to that old me, that old way of living. There's a new creation life. And when Jesus comes... There'll be no more seeing him through a veil, knowing him partially. In fact, at that day, we will experience the glory of God. He will exalt us as he did his own son. God will lift us up, bring us to him. There's a day of joy coming. And so in the meantime, as we're waiting, as we're in this in-between period of time, we're invited to live like a friend of God. And that's, uh, if, if you're uh, one of these note takers, I didn't get the bullet points in there. That's what I had for the first point on this passage. Live like a friend of God. Maybe that'll help you cement it in. Live like a friend of God where you're standing right beside God looking at the same truth that he knows to be true. It's not allowing our hearts to go after friendship with this world and all those appetites and hungers that this world fills and offers. But instead, calling him Lord. And I asked uh, this week, Karis and I were having a conversation I asked her, what does, what does that word Lord mean? And so we were talking about that and thinking about what does it mean when you say Lord to Jesus? Well, when you call someone Lord, it means he gets what he wants. He gets what he wants. Right? When you call someone Lord, you can't just say the word without having some follow through, right? You can't be like, oh yeah, yeah, hey, hey Lord, I'm going to do whatever I want. Because you've just negated the, the meaning of that word, right? To say Lord puts yourself in that humble posture where you're saying, you get what you want. And sadly, a lot of times, it's like, it's like we're calling ourselves Lord. You know, if we do everything that James warns about here in chapter 4, where I'm just going after my hungers, my appetites, my desires. If I want something, you ain't giving it to me, I'm going to murder you and take it. This, I mean, there's some really stern teaching here in James 4. Really, that whole heart posture is me saying, I'm Lord. I get to be in charge. I get to be in control. I'm in the driver's seat, not you and not God. But when we call him Lord, that means he gets what he wants. It means my desires submitting to his desires. It means my affection set on him alone. And as we do that, as we get it in the right posture, ourselves the servants, humbling ourselves before him, that's when we open ourselves up to his grace. That's when we open ourselves up to him exalting us and allowing us to experience the abundant life that he's always planned. Let's take a look at one more passage here together that continues on this theme of seeing the truth, 
that as friends of God, we stand with him. And so the second point here, focus on the truth. So if you want to grow in Christian friendship, number one, live like a friend of God. That passage that we looked at in James 4. And number two, focus on the truth. We're going to see this in Colossians 3, beginning of this chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, this imagery, this symbolism, this language about the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and how that relates to you and I. What does the cross matter in your life? Are you living a cross-shaped life, a cruciform life? Is this evident in your daily practice? That what it says here in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Are you living in light of that new creation? What does that look like? Well, we're we're setting our minds on things above. We're not living in in an earthly mentality. We're, We're awaiting the return of Christ, the Messiah, the King. Jesus, and he is our life. Jesus said it himself in John 14. It's on the back of your program. It's the name of our church. I am the way, the truth, the life. Is he your life? Is he your all? Is he coursing through your veins? Is he what you feel in your pulse? Pursuing him above all else. And looking forward to that day when he appears And when we also appear with him in glory, Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, the instruction here is that we're to live like dead people. You know, it's no longer me, my life, me, the Lord. I'm going to live dead. I'm going to live that cruciform, surrendered, submitted life because that's the path of seeing the truth that God sees, being a friend of God, not of this world. And it gets real practical. Here, here's, there, there's two parts here now. There's a putting off and then a putting on. Taking off those old garments. I'm done with that. I'm not wearing that outfit anymore. And then putting on the new clothing that God intends for his children. So what do we put off? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is the bad news of the good news. It's a a deception to only give people the good news. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's that's really good news. Unfortunately, that that aligns really nicely with most Americans' mindset. Well, I love me and I have a wonderful plan of my life too. Great. But there's some bad news that precedes the good news. It's that there is a coming wrath of God for sin. That's the bad news. And so take time to meditate on the bad news. Think about the bad news. That's what James said. Weep, mourn, grieve, humble yourself. And when you focus on the bad news, hopefully you don't try to do some kind of works-based salvation after that. Like, if I can just try a little harder, I can overcome all that negative and, and get to the positive. No, you can't. That's where you need the grace that when you humble yourself, he reaches down and he, he 
he lifts you up and he draws you to himself. But, but here's, here's a way, maybe you can't get to that humility today and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Well, here's how Paul instructs us to, to think about our own heart posture. Verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So, so that whole thing that we just read there in verse 5 and up, up through verse 6, don't think about that as somebody else. Right? Oh yeah, there's some other bad people out there. They're sexually immoral. They're impure. They've got passions that they're going after, evil desires. doesn't apply to me. The caution that Paul says to each of us here in verse 7, in these you too once walked. Church, let's humble ourselves. Let's come before God and say, yeah, that's me. I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I, I need a, a realistic reminder of where I am apart from Jesus. So that's the old way. But now, here's the good news. Verse 8. Now you must put them all away. The anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's a, when someone asks you, when were you saved? What do you say to that? Do you have a spiritual birthday when you can think of that's the day when it clicked? When I finally, finally understood that I was a sinner and that it was Jesus' shed blood alone that brought me from death to life. Can you remember that date? I hope you can. I hope you remember where you were, who was talking to you, who prayed with you, who opened the scriptures to show you, and you finally understood that there's more to life than just feeding the appetites that you're that come naturally to you. But you know, there's aspects of salvation that are not just past tense. And as you look through Scripture, you'll see there's a future salvation that we're awaiting when He comes in glory. There's an ongoing work of salvation happening in our hearts as we're being conformed to His image and likeness. That's what we're reading about here in Colossians. Some people call this sanctification, that process of becoming holy, right? Unfortunately, that didn't happen instantaneously on the day you met Jesus. They're like, oh, hey, I've met Jesus, my sins are forgiven, and I'm completely perfect. There's no temptation to ever put on any of those old things that we just read about. Wouldn't that be nice? And yet there's a becoming that's a part of this Christian journey as well. I think it's helpful to think of what's at the foundation, right? So, you know, if, if you dig down and get down to the foundation of your house, if the foundation is your works, that's a shaky foundation. That house is going to crumble and fall. There's a lot of religions and even some Christians who at the foundation of their salvation experience is their own works. And it's tempting, right? We're, unfortunately, we train our kids that way. Oh, you put your toys in the toy box. Daddy loves you. Oh no, you threw your food on the floor. Naughty, naughty, naughty. And somehow we get that into our minds and we think that God treats us that way as well. That his love for us is contingent on our behavior. It's our works that earn his favor. That's a really shaky foundation. That house will crumble. But if at the foundation of your salvation it's Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his shed blood, 
then we can start building something that brings glory to him. So it's not a works-based salvation, but it's definitely a works-producing salvation. When you call him Lord and you say, you're the master, you get your way, he starts messing with your life and saying, oh, really? Because I got some plans for you. And it's going to bring you joy. It's going to bring you the abundant life. And it's going to bring glory to me and to my name. And there is joy down that path of living for him and not for me. So we put off that old self. We put on the new self. Now listen to verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I think that's a perfect picture of what Christian friendship is to look like. You know, you look around the room, we've got a pretty diverse group here in the room today. Lots of different shapes and sizes and skin colors and backgrounds and coming from different parts of the country, a couple of different, you know, there's a few native Coloradans here and then the rest of us that have uh, found out about the, the secret of the nice weather here and the cool people and the green chili. And here we are, right? Kind of like the list here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, that surprisingly, when you focus on God and his glory and the truth, which is Jesus, you look around, you're like, man, you're not at all like me, but you see the same truth I do? Really? I thought I was the only one. And you're from a different ethnic background and a different cultural heritage, and you speak a different language than I do, and you've got a different worldview, and yet you see Jesus, we can be friends, whether Jew or Greek or circumcised or uncircumcised or all the different cultures right here in the room or around us, what truth do you see? The glory of God and Jesus exalted? Let's partner together for his glory and his kingdom. Focus on that truth and you'll be surprised at the friends that you meet who are also focused on him. Finally, we're going to read the last uh, section here. on what. So we've put off all this old self. What's the new that we put on? And what Paul instructs us to do is to put on love. Put it on. That's the garment that we clothe ourselves with. And that's how we grow in Christian friendship in our homes and in our church and wherever he sends us. So then verse 12, on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This reads like the spiritual fruit in Galatians, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here in Colossians, Paul has another list that's very similar to that. These are the kind of things that we put on. Welcome, teenagers and youth leaders. Good to have you here. Yeah. They, they don't smell too bad, and they look pretty good. That's good. Good to have you here. So we're in Colossians 3, verse 12. A list of, of characteristics that are to be present as we put on this new garment, clothing ourselves with Christ. Are these present in your home? Does this, does this list describe your home? Think about it. Compassion, 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness. Is that, is that a pretty good description of your marriage? Of the relationships between your kids, between the moms and the dads and the, and the kids? Does this describe our church family? Is this what we've clothed ourselves with? I hope so. I'm hoping to see a few heads nodding and some smiling. I see a lot of concerned looks actually right now. <laughs> there, is, there is action required on our part. You know, there are gifts that God gives, and then there's commands that He gives as well that He calls us to obey. The good news is that his grace and strength are present. When he calls us to a list like this of put this on, he's going to give us the power we need to carry this out in our homes. The problem is when we take that off and go, you know what, I'm giving up on the forgiveness and the compassion. I'm, I'm, I, I, it's, too, it's too much work for me to practice the kindness and the humility and weak, meekness. And so I'm going to go back to that old outfit that I used to wear and I'm going to put this one on instead. It fits better. It's more familiar it's more comfortable. That way that I once walked, the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, the obscene talk. It's when we make that conscious decision to put that on that we're in dangerous territory. Stay in the fight. It is hard work. It's difficult, but it's worth it. And God wants to do a work in your home and in our church body as we obey his commands and he strengthens us to that task, look into the truth that we share in common, that real friendship can emerge that lasts a lifetime and beyond. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful so there's some keys on how do you do this? How do you, how do you bring this about in your home? How do you put this on? How does this happen in your marriage and in your parenting and in your relationship within the church? Practice that gift love. This is the word agape here. Above all, let love, that kind of love that says you first, not me. Practice that. Strive for harmony, peace. Remember your calling. Remember that Jesus looked at you and said, you're my son, you're my daughter, and he called you to himself. How does that affect your living when you call him Lord? And that key of thankfulness, that's going to come up again. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's that word thankfulness again. The word of Christ, the teaching of Christ, are you in this book? How are you going to focus on the truth that is Jesus if you're neglecting time in his word and getting to know him and looking him face to face, seeing that truth that your brothers and sisters from all different cultural backgrounds see and know to be true? Get into it, dig into it. If you, if you didn't read it last week, Open it up tomorrow. It's a, it's a Monday. It's a new week. Dig in and dwell in it. Live in it. Let, let it live within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Hey, brother, have you, have you seen this verse? 
Let me, let me, let me teach you about this. Hey, hey, sister, thank you for admonishing me on that passage that I needed a reminder of in God's word. I want the word of Christ to dwell richly within me and my family and in our church body. And that results in some joyful activities together as well. Singing, all kinds of different songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I think we had a little bit of each one of those this morning already. So we're practicing this. And then again, that theme. If it comes up twice, it must be an important one here in Colossians, right? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, you already covered that, Paul. Back in verse 15. And be thankful. Again, I think, I think this is one that he's driving home. If we're going to put off that old self, put on the new, focus on the glory of God, thankfulness is one of the keys, one of the real keys. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here it is again. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Man, thankfulness is a key to keeping our heart posture going in the right direction, to having our affections go to him and not after our own appetites and desires, to, to looking at the, the things above, not the things of this earth, to making sure that old self is put off and we're putting on this new clothing and garments that God has for us. Thankfulness. God, thank you that I'm not that old me. Thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I can now live for you and walk in your kingdom. Thank you that you're doing a work in my family and in my marriage and in our church. And that when you command us to love one another, you also give us the resources and tools we need to obey and to live it out. Giving thanks to him. Not a works-based salvation, but definitely a works-producing salvation. There is a doing right here at the end that affects our words and our actions. Words and deeds all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him. Let me ask you a, a troubling question right at the end of our sermon here. What if as we're going through this whole list of the old self and the new self, and you're thinking about your own home, what if there's somebody in your family who is living like a friend of the world? What if there's somebody in your church who is not putting on the new self? And you're reading some of these lists with some pain. Because you're going, you know, I'm trying to put on the new self. It's not easy every day. But I'm submitting to him and I'm following after the Lord. But I've got someone in my life who's really not. And it hurts. Well, what do you do about that? Well, you can change you. Ground your identity in him. Pour the whole stream of your affection into him. And what God promises is he's going to work in you and he's going to work through you for his glory. Instead of bemoaning the fact that there's somebody else in your life who seems to be putting on that old self-garment and you get fixated on that and distracted from the goal that God is calling you to, leave that up to him. That's something you can't change or fix anyway. You can't, you can't change another human's heart. That's a work that God does. But what you can do is come to him humbly every day and say, I need more grace for today. And I'm done with that old me. And no matter what, my spouse, my child, my parent, that friend from church who's been stabbing me in the back, no matter what they're doing, I'm going to leave them up to God and I am going to ground my identity in him 
direct all the stream of my affection to him alone and live for his glory, receive grace that I need today. And you know what happens as you get uh, a group of people starting to do that? It starts to get contagious. And that believing spouse who hasn't really been going through this process of sanctification, they start to look at your life example and go, feeling guilty because she's looking more like Jesus than I am. I guess I'll just humble myself today. I guess I'll be thankful and forgive and allow God's grace to be present in my life and things begin to change as you let God change you. Can we each do that today and commit to that? What would happen if we had a whole church full of people saying, God, we're done with that old self and we're going to put on the new self. We're going to look at the truth that you know, man, there's going to be some friendship strengthened right here as we practice what he's commanded us to, to love one another. And by this, all the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. Let's stand together in his presence. And why don't we grab hands with somebody standing next to you to show our unity for the gospel. Let's give thanks to him today.